I'm Anna Marie Cox. Would you like to know more? Hi, I'm Daniel Dresner, and I'll be Anna's co-host until I'm dead or until she finds someone better. Welcome to Space the Nation, where we talk about science fiction through the lens of politics, and I talk about how capitalism is bad. Today's <laughs> subject is the film Starship Troopers. Up next is Octavia Butler's Kindred, and then the film adaptation of Children of Men, and then Rhonda Burns' The Power. And for our Schlock and Awe series, I think we're going to be doing the pilot for Fantasy Island. Is that mm-hmm. correct, Dan? I believe that's correct, yes. And uh, we are always looking for suggestions. And so if you have something off the white male dude path, please speak up. And if you have something on the white male dude path, suggestions are welcome, obviously, for our Cannon Fodder series, uh, which we've already done with Orson Scott Card and H.P. Lovecraft. Speaking of suggestions, we have narrowed down the choices uh, for our special patrons only episode. Choices are either Buckaroo Banzai, 28 Days Later, or Prospect. Please, patrons, do vote in the post allowing you to do so at our Patreon page, which is at patreon.com slash space the nation. What is the difference between a patron and a civilian? As little as $3 a month. (laughs) All right, Dan. I think we should get into the movie that's prompted our little catchphrase contest here. (laughs) And you need to explain why we are talking about Starship Troopers. We are talking about Starship Troopers for several reasons, one of which is is that any movie that causes my brother and I to repeat quotes at each other ad infinitum has some kind of demented value. And I do stress the word demented uh, because really the number of bad quotes in this film is extraordinary. But also I do think that, that the movie is interesting because there has been this fascinating debate over time about the merits or demerits of the film. Is it in some ways too effective in its portrayal of fascism or not. And there's a legitimate question, I think, whether people got the joke when the movie first came out, whether they get the joke now, or whether the joke is, frankly, a little too subtle for people to get. Yeah, I mean, if you just watched this movie, kind of not knowing very much about it, to call it subtle would seem very strange. (laughs) 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 Because aesthetically... It is about <laughs> as subtle as a neon beer sign, right? Yes. Like, it's aesthetics, but though... More like a hundred beer signs, I, yeah, neon right. beer signs, I would say. A yeah. whole crowd of beer signs. Yeah. And I think that's actually part of the artistic mission. Mm-hmm. In a weird way, I mean, it's almost too successful, right? Yeah. Like, it's, in, in that way, it is subtle. Mm-hmm. I actually think that on a filmmaking level, having... Now, this is... I think my second time watching it. The first time, I I don't really remember it that well. Although I remember getting the fascism thing, but kind of like, all right, fine. Fascism's bad. Okay. (laughs) Which at the time you thought was sort of a banal observation that surely everyone is aware of. (laughs) And now we're in 2021 when, you know, that point occasionally should be made explicitly, I think. Honestly, I do think that is one of the context shifts that changed the movie for me. I'm I'm very honest because I thought it was a banal observation. Like, yeah, Yeah. we're right. Fine. You know, it just didn't seem that interesting or adventurous. And watching it now also with like, you know, another two decades of like film criticism under my belt or like watching films for serious reasons, I should say, not like professional film criticism. But, Mm -hmm. you know, you everyone knows I'm talking about. Actually, I'm going to say go back. But now watching it again, you know, after two decades of study, let's say, (laughs) I think it's actually kind of brilliant (laughs) because everything works together. And and we'll be talking about this more as we, we break down the movie. 
But I just want to put out there right now that I think almost every aesthetic choice that is made in the movie is in the service of this idea of a parody of fascism, which is an almost too good parody of fascism. A a parody so close to the real thing that is almost indistinguishable. When is a parody not a parody? Like when it's an imitation. Right. When is it an homage, as it were? But I I honestly, I mean, you're right. In some ways, the the interesting question is whether Verhoeven is such a good, Paul Verhoeven, who directed the film, is he such a good filmmaker that weirdly he made a quality film about fascism? And I think there are easy tells to show that that he's trying to satirize it, but it does actually require a little bit of attention. And if you're not paying that attention, then it does work just at the basic level of sort of a space explosion but i could also see the alt-right loving this movie yes that's the thing no that's, you know, that's because yeah. it, he because i think as a as a filmmaker and, and i know his film a little much a little bit i think he was so entertained and interested in the idea of referencing fascism mm-hmm. that it kind of <laughs> becomes just a lot, a lot of reference, like like you said, almost an homage. Right. Like, well, the, the, and it's very clever. It is super, super clever. Yeah, I don't know if it's a great film. Oh no, I, I, the parallel I, I will make is uh, there's a Tim Robbins movie called Bob Roberts that came yes. out in the early '90s, which is a sort of mock documentary about a conservative candidate named Bob Roberts who's running for the Senate in Pennsylvania, and it is supposed to be a withering takedown of conservative, duplicitous conservatism. And the the ironic thing about that movie when it came out is that conservatives loved it. And the reason they loved it was because, among other things, Bob Roberts is ostensibly a folk singer, and he has all these songs bashing liberals. And the songs are good. Like, those are actually good songs that he wrote mocking liberals. And so the problem is, is that conservatives wound up embracing the film without understanding, or understanding it was supposed to satirize, but still finding it uh, extremely amusing. Yeah. I also think that it, liberals don't mind being made fun of. Right. So there's no point to the songs. Like, it's just, you know, like, they're, they, they don't have, like, liberals don't hate them. They don't feel offended by them. Right, right. No, they embrace the, so there's, they, they embrace the satire as well. Right, right. So there's yeah. no triggering that's happening, which I think even has always been a part of, like, Republican enjoyment or conservative enjoyment of, like, you know, satire of liberals is that it has to own them. Yeah. I mean, it does point out your point about the alt-right is well taken, which is to say that one of the ways in which the alt-rights, you know, in some ways succeeded in the mainstream partially was this question of are they satirizing elements of of fascism or not? And it's like this sort of half, it's a joke. Well, wink, wink. Is it a joke, really? And so on and so forth until the point where we realize it's a much bigger movement than perhaps we had anticipated. On this subject, I recommend a interview I did a few years ago. The title of the episode of my podcast around this is "Funny Is How We Got Here," <laughs> and it's an on your inter- other podcast. With yes, friends on my like other these. podcast with friends like these. Um, the episode entitled "Funny Is How We Got Here." It's an interview with Whitney Phillips, who's an internet information misinformation researcher, and she wrote a white paper uh, called "The Oxygen of Amplification." The amplification of oxygen. That was probably the oxygen. No, the oxygen of amplification sounds better. That's what it is. And it's about how ironic coverage of of the alt-right enabled Mm. its growth. Interesting. Because, you know, again, let's face it, like mostly liberal journalism class, like thought that just by kind of like pointing and laughing at the alt-right. It would diminish the alt-right. It would diminish them. Yeah. Guess what? (laughs) (laughs) 
Didn't work out that way. And speaking of unintended consequences, tell us the story behind this story. <laughs> I'd be happy to, Anna. So the source material for this movie is uh, the novel Starship Troopers by Robert Heinlein, who is safe to say a pretty conservative dude. And the, the novel as written is actually pretty much a peon to nationalism as we understand it and a sort of militaristic, you know, uh, aggressive uh, tendency towards fighting war with just about anyone. And there are plot elements from the book that do appear in the film, particularly I think the first third of the film pretty much structures plays alongside what the novel did. Uh, it was written by uh, Ed Neumeyer, who also wrote Verhoeven's Robocop. Also, I checked his IMDP page, and with one exception, he has only written Robocop or Starship Troopers films, apparently, which is a little weird, but like, yeah, there we go. And as I said before, it was directed by Paul Verhoeven, who apparently tried to read the novel, but couldn't get past the second chapter because he thought it was too boring. Uh, <laughs> Verhoeven also, you know, directed RoboCop and Total Recall, which are great sci-fi films. Um, but it's worth noting that when he was directing Starship Troopers, his previous film before that was 1995 Showgirls, which is a so-bad-it's-good kind of movie, or so-bad-there's-a-disturbing-rape-scene-in-it kind of movie. Take yeah, I was going to say, I think it's yeah. just bad, but yeah. it, it has some camp to it that some people celebrate. But I think there's mostly just, there have been scenes that have kind of been co-opted by people as being right. hilarious, but the movie as a whole, like, eh. Yeah. Again, anyway. in some ways, the problem is Verhoeven is such a good filmmaker that even when he's trying for bad, it's it it's believable enough so that I think it, it's viscerally disturbing. Yeah. And I do kind of wonder if part of the critical reaction to this film was in part sort of an after effect of the reaction to that one. You know, in that sense, I mean, the, the, the sort of arc of critical reaction to this film has been interesting because when the movie's first came out in 1997, it was safe to say it would be widely panned. Um, however, in recent years slash decades, there has been a reevaluation of the film. And a lot of people think it speaks to what we are undergoing uh, in the United States since, let's say, Donald Trump got elected. So kind of interesting there. It's also worth noting that uh, Verhoeven was very explicit in trying to copy a lot of Lenny Riefenstahl's work in terms of propaganda. The, the federal network bits are conscious copies of Riefenstahl's Why We Fight and Triumph of the Will. This also apparently affected his casting choices, uh, which is to say that he apparently just wanted really good-looking people in this film play his young people uh, more than anything else besides, you know, like, acting ability or things like that. Verhoeven has stressed multiple times uh, in DVD commentary of the film and in subsequent interviews that it was intended as a satire of fascism. And yeah, the allegories are there, uh, particularly in the uniforms and in the propaganda videos. Uh, he has also spoken in interviews about being scarred as a young child when he was growing up in World War II. Take those sentiments as genuine and yet Again, it's this question of whether or not he's too good at, at sort of the homage to fascism, as it were. Yeah, and whether or not some of the choices that some of the choices that he makes aesthetically can be read as either bad filmmaking or subtle criticism. <laughs> like for instance, I think the choice to cast these actors based on their looks is an aesthetic choice in the service of parodying fascism. <laughs> like, you know, it is saying that good looks matter above all else. I think even the woodenness of the acting of the main characters, there's actually some bit roles that- Yeah, we're gonna talk about that, yes. Genuinely good actors doing genuinely yeah. good acting. Yeah. But the main characters are made out of cardboard, really <laughs> hot cardboard. And I think, I think that's intentional. 
I really do. I feel like he yeah. wanted kind of just like <laughs> monotons. How am I saying that word? Amatons. Um, automatons. 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 Thank you. Yes. There you go. <laughs> I think he wanted automatons. This is like, why Anna is not going to find anyone better for this co-host <laughs> podcast. <people. laughs> it's one of those words you rarely say out loud. You read a yes. lot. Sometimes it's hard. Um, but I think that's what he wanted. He wanted stick figures, as I'm just going to say, <laughs> or puppets. <laughs> I'll get my thesaurus out so I don't have to try to say that word again. And it works, you know, yeah. if you read it as a satire, but it also can look like bad filmmaking. And I want to say, like, I read the Roger Ebert review, which I also sent you, and mm-hmm. it, I don't know if you read it, but I, I would, it's not wrong. Like, all the stuff he criticizes, let me hear me out he's not like wrong in the sense that the things that he calls out as being bad are are bad but it's in the service of this larger point you know like i think because i think even like the the terrible military strategy like at one point roger ebert (laughs) is like did they not think about grenades you know and yes i think we could just agree their military strategy like lacks (laughs) <laughs> no, no, no. I, I, I was going to say this later, but like one of the things I love, one of the things that's so stupid about this film is like the fleet, you know, gets surprised. We'll talk about this in their first battle because they're obviously bunched incredibly close together. Yeah, and yeah. then in the final they're you know, also battle, bu- they're also bunched really close together. I was looking at the screen saying, have you gods you know nothing for the love of God, people space out. I but really I, I, think that these choices are, are, can be seen as furthering his satire. I guess I would add two points to this. The first is, is that say what you will about the acting of the main characters. I mean, you're right. It's not the the greatest acting. There's no doubt about this. But what it's not is a sly wink to the camera. In other words, say what you will about these actors. It's not Galaxy Quest. Right. They believe their lines. And that's absolutely essential for this movie to work. Oh, actually, Um, Galaxy Quest actually is an interesting comparison because we said one of the reasons it works is it actually is kind of sincere. It's sincere right. at the end, but it takes a while to get there. Yes, right. I agree. But it's not supposed to be a... These actors do not think they're in a parody. Right, exactly. That um, is, I think, maybe the point to be made here. Yes. Um, <laughs> they are but unaware. I would, and I would add that because of that, again, I think the humor value of this film is greatly underappreciated because the number of lines in this film that whenever I hear them, I cannot stop laughing. Uh, you know, it's just like, like hearing... The goddamn bugs whacked us, Johnny. Like, you know, I'm sorry. I can't. I always crack up whenever I hear that. And it's delivered with such sincerity that that's one of the ways in which it works. And I, I as someone who appreciates humor, I, you know, what does that it's mean? It's such an interesting humor, thing like, to compare it to Galaxy Quest in a way. Yeah. Like, because yeah. Galaxy Quest also has some pretty, like, iffy special effects, you know, and some questionable tactical maneuvers. <laughs> yes, that's true. But no, I mean, let me put it this way. It does... But, one and of it's the, sincere, but it's sincere in a different way, right? Right. Galaxy like, Quest has heart, whereas yeah. this film, all the actors are committed, but they're not that nearly as good. And as a result, there it is, you know, there's an emptiness at the core of this film. Which, like, again, I, I think yeah. might have been intentional. And we yes. should probably just start talking about the film itself. Dan, please take us through Act One. 
All right, let us start with Act One, uh, Saved by the Fascist Bell. So it's the future. Earth's principal enemy is the planet Klendathu, uh, which is populated by arachnids who can apparently colonize planets by launching their spores into space. The bugs also attacked Earth uh, on a periodic basis by apparently hurling meteors at the planet. Earth is a fascist state, thanks to those lousy social scientists that apparently ruined democracy and required <laughs> the veterans to step into the forefront uh, to take charge in which service means citizenship. A bunch of wealthy, attractive, and curiously old high school students, Johnny Rico, Carmen Ibanez, Dizzy Flores, and Carl Jenkins, are tempted to join. Carl joins in the end because he's psychic and is sent to military intelligence. Carmen joins because she wants to be a pilot and does not seem to care about anyone or anything else beyond that. Rico joins against his parents' wishes because he loves Carmen. Dizzy joins because she's got the hots for her wide receiver, Johnny Rico. Carmen loves being a pilot and loves that her flight instructor, Xander, has the hots for her. She wants to go career and so decides to break up with Johnny. Dizzy joins Rico in the same unit, uh, experiencing the usual travails of basic training in the mobile infantry. Now, a quick aside, my favorite, one of my favorite scenes in this film is at literally in the very first beginning of the film in which their social studies teacher essentially explains how they got to their fascist state. And I really do think that the city fathers of Hiroshima meme should be used from now on to end all debate everywhere. You know, so like you're thinking of buying a new couch. I wonder what the city fathers of Hiroshima would say about that, Anna. But that said, as fascism goes one of the things that's interesting about this movie is that this variant is remarkably free of gender or racial discrimination. Is that even possible, Anna? So I would make a distinction between discrimination and representation. Okay. Because it is a aggressively multicultural cast in some ways. It is obviously real aggressively like co-ed. There's the co-ed, you know, showers, co-ed football, all of that. Yeah. But I think the gender stereotypes are still there. <laughs> it's not as though the presence of women has like changed the way that men think about women or that women think about men for that matter. And the other thing it I'm is point it out, is an aggressively heterosexual movie. That and would also be one way aggressively heter- I was going to sp- yeah. point that out. And also yeah. the main cast is all white. And also yeah. all the leaders, except the second sky marshal, but like the leaders in the military, there's the pilot, but most of them are men and white men at that. Mm-hmm. So I don't, and I also, and I will also argue, I think this is Verhoeven doing something that's an aesthetic choice in the service of his whatever to fascism, which is that (laughs) you can make people integrate. And also you can make people feel like they're all kind of the same and they're all equal. I think he sees fascism as like a machine that stamps out people, you know? Yeah. Like... It, you get a carbon copy, carbon copy, carbon copy. Even if they all look different, people are basically interchangeable. And, they're and, uniforms. And they're uniforms. And I wanted to add that also about the basic training, which is it's an unusually violent basic training. <laughs> like, I've never seen a drill sergeant impale someone's hand before in a movie, you know, <laughs> like, <laughs> or I break I mean, someone's well, arm. <laughs> I, I, I will and, say this. And what, I think that speaks yeah. to the disposability of the people. I really do. I think that he's showing like this is like a a, a world of very casual violence where people are just like killed if they don't cooperate, killed or maimed if they don't cooperate. I guess, although I I don't want to take this movie seriously, but I will point out that like when someone dies during a live fire exercise, they do take that seriously, to be fair. They seem to take it seriously as a fuck up. 
Yes. And it, yes. it's not like, oh, this poor guy. I mean, it, it, not very sentimental about it. And also, I want to point out in that scene, Johnny has become the squad leader. It right. was Dizzy that called the play. Yes. That made him the hero. So I noticed that too, but I will give Johnny credit because when he gets that thing, he then literally says to Dizzy, I could not have done this without you. So at least he acknowledges that the... Oh, agree, agree, like in that particular scene, but it's like, why not make her the squad leader? I do tend to agree, especially because it suggests that that's what she wants in the first place, and then she sort of sublimates it. I agree that Carmen seems like a sociopath also, I will say. Dear God. (laughs) And I am not sure if that's intentional or not. (laughs) She comes across as a monster. Yes. (laughs) I just want to say that was good casting because if you're going to cast a, you know, if it's Denise Richards, you will tend to look, you know, past a little bit of this. But dear God, just not a good person. All right. Dan, we have the setup, which I also want to mention they are in Buenos Aires, which I think is also intentional. <laughs> I, w- I will say, in fairness, I th- the characters are set in Buenos Aires in Highland's novel. So, all right. I was just thinking, you know, like, but, but yes, obviously. <laughs> yes, like, yes. <laughs> that occurred to me as well, and it does seem relatively obvious. Also, again, they're all in Buenos Aires. They're the Argentine elite, but they are just white as fuck, is the, the best way of putting it. All right. So, let's go to Act Two, Dan. All right, fascists fight foul. So Johnny is promoted to squad leader, but screws up during a live fire exercise and receives administrative Sorry, we spoiled all of that in our little discussion. Yeah, I'm not really all that sorry about it, to say the truth. Bummed about Carmen breaking up with him, uh, he decides to quit and return home when an arachnid-launched meteor destroys Buenos Aires. Uh, Rico pleads to stay in the MI and is then deployed along with everyone else to invade Clendathu. The invasion does not go well. Earth retreats, a lot of humans are dead, and indeed all of Rico's platoon is killed uh, except for Dizzy and his friend Ace. Rico, Dizzy, and Ace are then reassigned to a new unit, Radchek's Roughnecks, commanded by their old high school social studies teacher, the one who explained fascism so well. Earth's grand strategy shifts to a more peripheral outlook in which they're going to attack the outer planet rather than Klondathu itself. Rico keeps succeeding on the battlefield and getting promoted because his immediate superiors are killed. He and Flores also finally hook up after Radchek advises him to do that. Anna, let's talk about the homage to propaganda that is the federal network scenes. Um, are they too effective? <laughs> we, we sort of discussed this. I do yeah. think they hold up really, really well. I mean, and I, perhaps it's the nature of propaganda that it doesn't change very much through the decades, that propaganda always kind of feels the same. Yeah. But what I really want to talk about just a little more is the terrible military strategy. I, did, I mean, <laughs> like, it's just, <laughs> it's just preposterous. <laughs> like, I was watching the Avengers the other day, Civil War, and they have a similar, you know, when they have the face-off at the airport, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. they do the same thing that, like, old-style battles used to be, which is just they walk towards each other and then start fighting, which has that, always struck me as, like, a weird way to do a war. It like, happens in Avengers Endgame as well. Yeah, no, it's true. <laughs> you just I, line up on either side and you just, like, walk towards each other and then you start fighting. And that is what they do with the bugs and guess what the bugs like have different ideas and actually seem to be engaging in a more you know sophisticated military strategy 
<laughs> they have we will faked talk about this out when we talk the to, humans. Yes, we I'll will talk say. about this when we get to the IR portion of the uh, of the podcast. That's true. The one thing I want to add about the the federal network, like sort of propaganda, which is there's one. It's honestly, I think, might be the best acting performance in the entire movie. But it's it's like the biggest tell that this is a, a satire is that very brief scene where you see the kids stepping on the bugs because they're doing their part, and then it cuts to the mother looking at them doing it. And the mother gives what I can only describe as the best hysterical bordering on panic laugh that you I've ever seen on film. And it makes it very clear that this is over the top. I also appreciated that scene and wanted to talk about it. So I'll just talk about it a little bit here, which is it that is works as satire really well. But yeah. I think you it's may, might be a little too sophisticated for your average viewer. <laughs> Which is to say, I think what he's doing, you know, there's no connection between the fucking bugs on Earth and the bugs in space. <laughs> there's no reason to stamp out the bugs on Earth. It's, you don't it's know that. They could be a fifth column. All right, it's Anna. Like, I think, you know, come on. You know, it's bug internment camps. That's what it is. No, that's actually <laughs> terrible joke and also not even really the same. Although I do think that's what he's parroting. He's parroting the fact that when we are at war with a people, species, whatever, those things that look like them that are among us, we turn against because that feels good to do. Yeah. So good job. Maybe too good. Paul. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's move on to act three. We're in this for the species, boys and girls, which again, just an awesome line. I love it. So Rodchak's Roughnecks are sent to planet P to answer a distress call where they find an outpost destroyed and a radio operator with his brain sucked out. It's a trap. The Roughnecks fight off a whole mess of bugs while a rescue ship piloted by Carmen arrives just as the place is about to be overrun. Both Lieutenant Radchek and Dizzy Flores uh, die in the engagement. At Flores' funeral, Carl appears and explains that Rico's unit was sent in even though they thought that it was a trap. They needed to know whether there was a brain bug on P. Now they do, and they're going to go try and capture it. Rico is then promoted to lieutenant. Anna, others have pointed this out, but if you look at all the battle scenes... The humans get their asses kicked repeatedly. It's it's really interesting that way. But I have a slightly different question for you, which is, are Clancy Brown and Michael Ironside sci-fi's most underrated character actors? I was thinking about them the entire movie. Well, not when they show up, I would think yeah. about them, which is maybe a kind of distraction, because, but they do stand out. Yeah. Right? That's the problem when you, you cast non-actors, let's say, in your main Oh, come roles. on. That's not fair. They're actors. <laughs> They're just not very good. Although I have right. to say, again, I, I laugh every time Dina Meyer says, I love you, Johnny. Like, the, literally, the like, two seconds after they hook up. It, I, I die every time I watch that. It, they are good. I'll just say yeah. that. It's, they are served by the quality of the acting they are next to. Mm-hmm. Um, but there, but there, it, it makes the movie more fun for sure. It's not like it ruins the movie to like notice that there's bad acting next right. to good acting. So yes, I agree. There, I don't know if they're underrated because here we are talking about them. They are, mm. they are very rated. They're totally Fair rated. Enough. Fair enough. Oh, I, I also wanted to say some things that bother me. <laughs> yes, go ahead. <laughs> you found things that bothered you in this film. Keep going. Flores's funeral. <laughs> They literally say that hundreds of thousands of soldiers have been killed in this war. Do they have like a whole pomp and circumstance like military funeral with like honor guard and everything for all of them? I don't think so. I assume not. And also the shooting the casket out into space. Again, all of those ships are flying really close together. (laughs) (laughs) 
Okay. All right. You know what? I hate it to do. It seems like a bad idea. I am especially if you. you're doing that funeral. Especially if you're doing hundreds and thousands of, fu- of funerals. I am furious that you are making me defend this film on serious <laughs> grounds, but I'm going to do it. Which is to say, first of all. It has not surprised me that there are very few funerals because, you know, as Carmen says at one point a lot earlier in the film, there are very few wounded who then die. It's almost all KIA. And so as a result, like all the people who die are pretty much left on the planet. Although this was the one error that I, I continuity error that is just glaring in the film, which is after they lose at Klendathu, they then cut to the federal network, which shows a camera shooting like apparently, oh, I noticed that too. Yeah, yeah, the devastation on Klondatu, and I'm like, where the hell did that camera come from? Like, did they just go back and shit? Like, that made no sense whatsoever. I could have saved this for the end, but it's um, but I noticed it in this section, which is the plot of this movie is not, I mean, kind of lame. You know, yeah. like it just doesn't, it doesn't move very. It, the pacing is bad. Like, you don't again a problem with having bad actors in your leads. You don't really care. There's not a lot of like um, tension or drama or stakes even. And yeah. what pulls me along is the ancillary stuff that he's doing. You mm-hmm. know, like what is he going to do next? That's sort of like I'm thinking to myself, what kind of trick is Paul going <laughs> to going to have for me, you know, in this scene? Like what where's the reference going to be? Like where's the funny line going to be? And well, I mean, that or, is, or a, the... oh, that sorry, is not ahead. a mark of a good movie to be thinking those thoughts. I guess, although, again, it's an amusing movie. Like, again, when you see Carl walk in with what is literally an SS uniform, you know, in that scene with yeah. the, the funeral. You, yeah, you, that was funny. And I was, was like, funny. and I don't yeah. care that Flores died. Yeah, you that's know? true. <laughs> true, but like, I think it's that kind of, I think we're, maybe the disturbing thing is that in a movie that is essentially about fascism, it's not surprising that you don't care about individuals dying because the individuals mm. don't matter. You're making my point. Yes. I was about to say, I, maybe oh. this is also a point, right? Yeah. Like his aesthetic choices in the service yeah. of parodying slash replicating fascism. Yeah. And that's what I think is happening. I would never say it's an homage to fascism. No. I just think it's so close to it. You can't read. It's really hard to read it as a parody. Like parodies, people study comedy. And <laughs> one of the things that I learned in the improv group that I was a part of is that parody depends on exaggeration, right? Right. And it's not get, that exaggerated. Yeah. It's actually pretty just spot on. And again, watching it now makes it... Although I am going to point out that, again, at the time that the movie came out, seeing Doogie Hauser in an SES uniform, I don't think that's subtle. I think that's pretty... Also, with what must be like... like I don't know if they kept Neil Patrick Harris up for 48 hours straight before he <laughs> shot that scene, but like it's the most recessed eyes I've ever seen on, in, on Neil Patrick Harris. And so like... Oh, and he is a problem because he's kind of a good actor. Yeah. That's also like... But he's not on screen very much. Yeah, right. So, you know, I guess they could afford to have him act. Uh, <laughs> I do want to finish up so we can talk about some of the themes of this movie, Dan. Yeah. Let's, let's, let's motor on... To act for. Okay, in which it's afraid. Woo! Rico's roughnecks are looking for some kind of smart bug. Ibanez's ship, the Roger Young, is destroyed by bug plasma as they are uh, dispatching the soldiers to Planet P. Carmen escapes in with- huge groups that are all very close together. <laughs> yes, and examples of poor learning by fleet. Uh, Carmen escapes with her instructor boy toy and crash lands in a bug cave. The boy toy Xander gets his brain sucked out by the brain bug. Rico senses that Carmen 
Carmen is still alive and arrives to rescue Carmen. They barely escape after alerting the rest of the MI where the brain bug is headed. When they get back to the surface of the planet, uh, Rico and Carmen see that the brain bug has been captured by Zim, Rico's old boot camp sergeant, played by Clancy Brown, who again is awesome. Carl reads the brain bug's mind and discovers that the bug is scared. Who would have guessed that? Everyone cheers! The movie ends by suggesting that with veterans like Rico and Ibanez, the humans are going to win. Okay, Anna, some real talk. I don't think the humans are going to win because I have my doubts that they have learned anything of value from the brain bug. And indeed, that very last, like, federal network thing doesn't show them learning anything from the brain bug. It just shows them torturing the fuck out of the brain bug. So I don't think they're going to get any valuable information. I don't think they're going to learn how the brain bug thinks. I think they're going to continue to get their asses kicked. What say you? And continue not to learn from their losses is a military strategic sense, right? Yes. Like, yeah. they're just going to keep sending masses of ships, huge ships, very close together <laughs> <laughs> to the planet, just sitting ducks every time. Where the, um, And then the mobile infantry is just primarily going to rely on machine guns, even though that apparently is a really bad way to kill a buck. It, it, it is. And also, like, they, they do have grenades, we learn in one heroic scene. There are grenades. And I kept on thinking of chemical weapons. I mean, perhaps because they're bugs. So I was thinking about, like, raid, you know. I can't believe I know, you would know, suggest that the chemical weapons convention be But violated. in the context yeah. of this movie, you would think... <laughs> Someone would point out, hey, how do we kill bugs here on Earth? What's a way that's really effective to kill bugs when you have a lot of them in your house here on Earth? I think the huh. answer is you build a giant space foot and you step on the planet. <laughs> or you fire pellet guns at them yes. one at a time. Let's right. just like. <laughs> and then I also I came up with a phrase that I have to share, which is Chekhov's psychic abilities. Okay. Um, we are introduced in Act One to ESP. It goes on the shelf. Mm-hmm. It comes back in Act Four. So you can't introduce, you know, a thing like that into a plot and then just like put it away. And I kept on wondering, like, when are we going to get the, you know, gonna come back <laughs> and to the psychic I, abilities? Right. And I did, I did not mention this in the plot summary, but to be clear, Carl implanted the suggestion in Rico's mind to rescue Carmen. So you know, right. Yeah. And you also mentioned that you know, well, they do apparently read minds, and then. Spoiler alert for one of the other things I'm going to talk about more when we talk about themes. I, I This is the section of the movie where I started to think that one of the things that I think he's doing intentionally is saying, are we really better than these bugs? Mm-hmm. Like, look at our bad military strategy. <laughs> <You know? laughs> We're not that smart. We move in herds. And, you know, we torture, they torture, we torture. It all kind of winds up being kind of the same. And, and I, I want to talk more about that. But this is where I started to think about it, especially it was the torture. It's the very last scene. Yeah. Torturing a bug, which I know seems weird that you might have sympathy for a bug, but it looks pretty nasty. So yes. I know that we need to get on to the section that everyone, you know, tunes in for, Dan. <laughs> Dan. Anna. Is there IR in this movie? There is some IR in this movie. The most obvious part is the sort of standard security dilemma that we see uh, in, that potentially started the war. That there's a very brief moment where one of the announcers suggests that, in fact, the humans might have started this conflict because they ventured into the arachnid quarantine zone. Johnny Mormon react- radicals. There we go. Johnny <laughs> reacts to that by saying his people were Buenos Aires and he 
you know, pitches a fit. But nonetheless, it seems entirely plausible that the humans were responsible for the start of the war. And what is the biggest source of war in world politics? It's always territorial disputes. And so it is unsurprising that that would be the start of the war uh, between the Arachnids and uh, the humans. The more slightly more interesting, I think, IR component here comes from a, a book that uh, Jack Snyder wrote called Myths of Empire, which is a great book. Uh, came out in 1991, arguing that essentially... Completely authoritarian states and completely democratic states tend to be somewhat less militaristic, that the most militaristic states are sort of states in between, that have some degree of, you know, either, you know, uh, democracy or what have you, but also significant authoritarian elements. And I would argue that the society in Starship Troopers fits that. And the reason is, is because those kinds of sort of quasi-open states are the most vulnerable to self-aggrandizing myths of victory, which is they eventually wind up frankly, believing their own bullshit is the best way to put it. And so you see that in in the movie, first of all, in, in one of the scenes in which a Fox News commentator, I'm sorry, that it's just pretty obvious, refuses to believe in the possibility of smart bugs because that's quote unquote offensive, which I found hysterical, the idea that, you know, cancel culture is causing, you know, the refusal to recognize <laughs> that that might be a possibility. <laughs> The other thing is when Carmen says at one point, you know, we thought we were smarter than the bugs. We weren't. And unfortunately, as, as Anna and I said repeatedly, they don't seem to get any smarter as the film goes along. But like it, it explains why that they, they not only decide to launch the war, but then also continue to screw up the conflict. And so. And again, I guess you saved me some quotes for our next section, right? Because <laughs> those are two of the things that I noticed when I went back and started to think about what is he saying about our status right. compared to the bugs? Like, they probably don't think we're smart either. And, I was, you know, of course, actually, I thought about Ender's Game, right? Mm-hmm. Which actually does a great job. One of the things I begrudgingly yeah. <laughs> you know, had to had to you know compliment that book for is that it does a flip on exactly the same situation where you the assumptions you make about a, a foreign enemy society mm-hmm. and how they might be wrong. Yeah. And it's never in this film, they don't give you any indication you might be wrong, except just that the humans are so stupid. Like <laughs> No, and in some ways like this is this is like the most anti-social constructivist film you can possibly have. And the reason I say that is that it, the idea in social constructivism as a theory is that you want to develop intersubjective understandings, that if you can share and understand what the other side thinks, it's not that you're necessarily going to lead to peace, but at least negotiation and so on and so forth is possible. That's not the way this movie goes. This movie is obsessed with the idea that once we think we know what the bugs think, then we can kill them. And, in, you know, and indeed... There's a quote, which we'll talk about in a little bit, where the commander says the same thing is true about the bugs. Mm-hmm. Okay, this leads us, of course, to our very important next section, which lots of listeners are also concerned with. Anna? Dan? Is there a critique of capitalism in this film? I'm so glad you asked. <laughs> uh, weirdly, I couldn't really find one because of the kind of shallowness of the movie, The uh, what I think is intentionally shallow. There are references to class, someone being rich and someone being poor, but we never see anyone working. There is no indication that there is labor anywhere. (laughs) (laughs) There's kind of all we see. The only only professions we really see are like a teacher in the military. Football players. Right, football players. And then I also was waiting for Rico's parents to say, we can buy you citizenship. And Mm. they did not say that. So apparently you can't buy citizenship, I'm assuming, in this world. And so there is this weird sort of 
equality. And it reminded me a little bit of H.P. Lovecraft's, you know, affection for what he, you know, considers socialism, a kind of national socialism, let's say. Well, no, uh, I mean, like, if you want to, I, mean, I would say I actually kept thinking of Lovecraft, too, first of all, because of the bugs, for Christ's sakes. I mean, right. like, it, I, 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 I have to think Lovecraft, if, if he had ever watched this film, would have nodded his head like, yeah, those are what I was thinking about in terms of bugs. Yeah. But but also that, um, as you say, say what you will about the fascism, it's actually not corrupt, I guess would be the way to put it. Yeah, it's not corrupt. And also, you know, I guess there's no concerns about people getting fed, you know. No. It just seems to be fine. And I actually was sort of curious because they do imply that Rico is very wealthy. Mm-hmm. I was curious about like what form does that take compared to anyone else? We don't see any other examples. Of, no, like, the only what- the one class division I thought was existed weirdly was sort of between the fleet and the mobile infantry. You know, yes. there is that scene where they do like start to argue, and it's made very clear that mobile infantry is looked at as like. They're the grunts. Like, they're not taken seriously. And, the f- and they are. That's yeah. the thing. And when that fight happens, I remember thinking, like, you, this is actually something you've embraced, dudes and, and gals. <laughs> like, you, you actually are sort of proud of this, you know, yeah. like, that, you're do, that you do the work. And I mean, it, and yes, the pilots should be less condescending, of course. <laughs> um, anyway, like I think, like I said, I think it's a little bit weird. I think Verhoeven is so concerned with uh, his paint-by-numbers fascism yeah. that... He kind of just, everything else is, like, not important. Right. So there's not much social stuff to critique. Dan, we've now talked about a lot. Yes. But let's condense some of our thoughts. <laughs> let's get real specific. Let's talk about the themes and the applicable quotes we have for this movie. So... I have one theme and one quote. The theme is, and again, this is, the, I think, actually legitimately the most visually interesting thing about the film is just the masses of bodies that you see. And in some ways, this is emblematic of, again, this notion of fascism and how would you present it on film? Because what you see is like constant crowd shots of either the troops or the bugs fighting. And indeed, I think the the scene where they all, everyone at basic finds out about the Buenos Aires attack is actually really interesting because you like, you see them all like sort of doing one thing and then they all, the, the sort of reaction sort of ripples through the crowd. It's actually, they well look done. sort of like ants. Yes. Yes. And so again, it's this parallel of, I, I think it, it is this parallel simultaneously of like human beings as drones. And also, again, it, it fits with this notion of individuals don't necessarily matter all that much if you are operating in a, a fascist state. So that is certainly, you know, something interesting. And this is where I do think the special effects are actually pretty good. Like when you see all those bugs coming down to attack them on Planet P. Like I remember watching it on the, sc- on the, on the big screen for the first time. And I actually was like, wow, that, okay, that's pretty intense. So that was well done. And in terms of quotes, you know, again, this this notion of essentially anti-social constructivism. They're just like us. They want to know what makes us tick. They want to know us so they can kill us. So, you know, the suggestion is, is that, you know, to be fair, it's not just the humans that might be perpetrating war. It might very well be the bugs as well. Or it might be the humans thinking that the bugs are just like them. And... We were thinking alike, Dan. Um, I encapsulated it as humans are no better than bugs. Like, what are the real differences between yeah. bugs and humans? And I'm going to pull out a, a couple quotes that we haven't already said ourselves. We humans like to think we are nature's finest achievement. I'm afraid it just isn't true. This archaic sand beetle is superior in many ways. Everyone fights, no one quits. If you don't do your job, I'll shoot you. 
We're in this for the species, boys and girls. It's simple numbers. They have more. <laughs> and again, I was fascinated as I watched it, not necessarily in a, in a complimentary way, to see all of these choices that Verhoeven made um, to underscore his point, which when you sometimes if you scream so loud, maybe you deafen people and so mm. they can't hear the scream. Like maybe that's the metaphor that happens for this film. Yeah. Is that he's just it's so, so, so about fascism. Yeah. That it is hard to see it as a critique. I do think that he is saying that fascism strips us of our identifying kind of traits. You know, yes, race and gender don't matter, but that's because in the fascist state we're all the same and then that line about we're fighting for the species really drives it home (laughs) yes but again it's so goddamn funny i'm sorry it it is oh it's it's funny although i do think it takes some a little bit you have to realize how weird it is to say that yes i think to think of it as funny yeah and it's it is weird, and again, what I think he's doing is saying, like, if you boil us down to a species, how are we different? No. And it is the same as we're doing this for the white race, you know, or we're doing this to preserve slavery, because it's this huge... Th- actually, you know what? It's not even the same as, as pres- to preserve slavery, actually, because what I, it's not an idea. There's no indication that there is a reason beyond, like, just we're existing, and we want to... It's survival. It's survival, but who started it? Right. You know, we don't actually know. It's not incredibly clear who started it. And you can, the, the nice thing about all wars being about territory is mm-hmm. that it's possible to negotiate when you're talking about territory. Like, Ugh, you're making me defend this movie and I don't want to. But like, I, I will say, one of the oddities you could argue of this particular dynamic was is that, I, you know, the question was, could you have communicated with the bugs? And it does seem clear that there was no communication that was uh, that was possible. Now, you can also say they didn't try very hard because instead of just figuring out... If you can yeah. read someone's mind, <laughs> which they heavily imply Carl yeah. is going to do with that bug, you don't need language. I don't know if she really did read the bug's mind. I could have told you the bug was scared, for Christ's sakes. The bug is surrounded by humans. It was fucking I, obvious the bug was scared. That is like classic Counselor Troy, Beta Z, I sense something's wrong, sort of, you know, kind of extrasensory input is what I'm saying. What would be kind of funny is if actually psychic abilities didn't exist and Carl was just really lucky. <laughs> <laughs> and he, like, fooled himself into thinking he's psychic. There we go. <laughs> He's like the captain. He's like the John Walker Captain America of this episode <laughs> of this movie. All right, Dan. Ping, 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 ping. Crash, ping, ping, ping. Uh, the, uh, we're in the debris field. Let's wrap up with some things that we noticed but haven't been able to salt into our conversation previously. Okay, uh, I have a few comments this time. First of all, again, this is a theme that Verhoeven and Neumeier have done twice, but co-ed showering is apparently really big in their universe. Uh, We saw it in Robocop, and we see it here as well, showing the sort of gender equality, sort of. Second, that oath they take to join the federal service in the beginning of the film, that sounded way worse than Apple's terms of service, frankly. Because as I was listening to it, I was like, 
Wait, they can never leave. No, don't say yes to this. Don't sign that. That was my, my the reaction I had to that. And yet we all press that button we for all Apple's end-user agreement. So. Yes. Something, I have watched this movie multiple, multiple times, and something I learned watching this time, which I had never realized, is that Rue McClanahan is in it. Um, yes, a Golden Girl is in this movie. She plays the sort of biology teacher, I think, at their high school, um, who is, like, I, I can only see looks like a Mrs. Dr. Strangelove, given the way they costumed her, and that was fascinating. And also, finally, I couldn't help but wonder whether there are parallels between Johnny Rico and Jared Kushner as a rich boy who apparently can get into Harvard, except... (laughs) (laughs) And also is besotted with a vapid woman, but that's a whole separate, you know, conversation. So I have a pretty short list here because we got to most of the things I wanted to talk about. As people may know, I am a huge animal person and I am often disturbed by violence towards animals, as I mentioned in the Altered Carbon episode. But the fake dead dog (laughs) in the footage (laughs) of the bombing of Buenos Aires did make me laugh. I mean, it's so it's fake. It's so and obviously also, fake. It looked like Ralph so the dog from the Muppets. Yeah, it looks like <laughs> Ralph the dog. It looks like a puppet has been like put between two rocks and then thrown ketchup on it. Yeah. But what I like about that, and it wound up being even funnier because that's apparently the straw that breaks the camel's back for whoever's like <laughs> turns to camera. You know, there's like death and destruction everywhere. And this guy sees a dead dog and he turns to the camera and just screams. So I did appreciate that. <laughs> I also appreciated the fact that apparently everything has changed about our world. And, and you know, there's all these other technological advances and everyone's in the military, but we still have Harvard. <laughs> <laughs> we still have Harvard. And it still signifies the same exact fucking thing that it signifies in popular culture now, which is like really, really prestigious and cool. And you would never turn down an offer for to go to Harvard. That would just be crazy, right, Dan? No one should ever, ever not go to Harvard, I would think. The amazing thing is it's mentioned twice because, like, first Rico yeah. could get into Harvard. And then there was that other, you know, grunt, apparently, in the mobile infantry who got into Harvard and, you know, is having them pay his way to go to Harvard and is doing as an enlisted person. I didn't quite get that, but whatever. Oh, yeah. No, no, no that makes no sense. That's why I was yeah. saying, like, the class stuff in this movie just is, like, referenced, yeah. you know? I mean, it's not there's no nothing actually like in it yeah. um but yeah i really i laughed out loud at the at both of the references to harvard they also still have compact discs which <laughs> you know a lot of the the technology is now um outdated but that's the one i really noticed the last thing is when the drill sergeant um impales one of the enlistees hand because the enlistee has said, like, you can always press a button to shoot a nuke. Like, why are we right. practicing throwing knives? I think it's a damn good question, by the way. <laughs> I don't think knife throwing is a part of basic training in most, <laughs> you know, militaries. I could be wrong. I will and say Chekhov's, also, Chekhov's knife does not appear later in this movie. Like, I was ex- I was half true. expecting, like, okay, at some point a knife's going to be thrown and that's going to make the difference. But it never was. There is a knife, but it's not thrown. Yeah. And so the the jail sergeant says you can't the enemy cannot push a button if you disable his hand. Yeah, he can. It, and also, also the bugs have eight legs. And the, they mean, have no <laughs> buttons. They have no buttons. The arachnids have no buttons. 
Well, and also, if there was a button, you can press a button with anything. That's true. Like, it doesn't need to be your finger, right? Like, and to me, I was like, can I make this a part of my argument that all of this is intentional? And I was like, well, maybe he's saying again, like, humans are really stupid. Like, they just, like, (laughs) that's no way to fight a war. If that's what you think about your enemy, again, that's a really good point, too, that I didn't think about. There are no buttons. I will there say no what, what also maybe what also made me laugh is that the, at, right at the end of that he then goes medic the same with the exact same intonation yeah. he did when he first broke the other guy's hand and it's like yeah apparently this is a routine thing as you pointed out before which again yeah you know, human life is disposable oh yeah. and I have a last thing uh, Dan did you enjoy the space hoedown <laughs> I <laughs> you know what I enjoyed with Civil War era of fiddling yes. Which I notice it's it's genuine Civil War era fiddling because I happened to have the credits go by like I was doing something else so I didn't like stop the mm-hmm. film and I saw them do the music credits and the yeah. music gr- credits were for like some sepia toned like folk recording which made me wonder what would the Ken Burns uh, history oh my of God, the yes. Bug War look like <laughs> that would be great. That would be wonderful to watch. I will say, the only thing I I loved about the Space Hoedown is, the, and it's this weird thing that Verhoeven does throughout the film, is like when Jake Busey is playing the violin, at one point, he's like really up close to Dizzy and Johnny and just like staring at them with a slightly disturbing intensity. And you see that happen in multiple dance scenes in this film, or, or you know, like, Neil Patrick Harris does it at one point very early. It's just a little weird tick. And again, I think it just sort of shows that this is supposed to be slightly over the top. Yeah, I think that is about it. I mean, I think if we really pressed, I would find other things to talk about because it is a rich text, if nothing else. (laughs) And, you know, we didn't explore the would you like to know more joke. So maybe I'll just use it again. Dan, what should people do if they would like to know more? Well, one thing you can do would be to become a patron. Go to patreon.com slash space the nation, where you can find past episodes uh, as well as some fun extras. You could also become a patron. The benefits include early access to episodes, merchandise, AMA access, and access to our Discord, which is quite vibrant uh, and really without very much input from Anna and myself. It's a very cool little community. They you- are doing watch parties, for instance. Yes. And the last one, Dan and I did not go to. <laughs> And they still had a lot of fun. Dan, we're not necessary for them to have fun. Oh, my God. Like, But I like to th- I think of it as being a parent. We've human like, beings are replaceable. No, no, no. I think I, the way I think of it is like our, our little community is all grown up now and they can you know have fun without us, but they can also enjoy our company. Also, you know, balloting is closed for our uh, forthcoming patrons only episode, but we might have more patrons only episodes. And so if you become a patron, you will get to have a voice in terms of deciding what we'll be talking about in the future. I would also thank our current patrons for making so many great suggestions. Indeed, a lot of those suggestions we are actually going to be talking about in the future. And I just want to thank everyone for listening because doing this podcast is really fun. I think it's meant a lot to both Dan and myself uh, in the pandemic era, especially like to have something that we genuinely love doing be a regular part of our week. And I just want to say, like, if you if you can't um, support us as a patron and we are in pandemic times and I understand if that is not a place you want to put what some of your three dollars a month, um, <laughs> you can always tell your friends and neighbors about us, which is probably as important. I mean, feeding Karen's puppy is super, super important. And I do encourage people to become patrons in order to help pay for you know, like Karen's puppy's college fund. But 
just tell your friends and neighbors and also you can rate and review us and i dan i went and looked at our reviews for the first time oh my okay and i was uh, trepidatious about it. and it turns out we have like 30 something reviews which is not a lot is an average of five stars and we, like, there's like two four star reviews which i couldn't bring myself to read <laughs> <laughs> I was like, wow, they must really not like something if they're going to knock off a star. Like, giving something four stars seems really also like four stars. I guess if you feel like nothing can be perfect, maybe you give something four stars. In any case, you can rate and review us. That actually helps people find the podcast. Although now I'm afraid to send people there because it might ruin our five star rating. Fortunately, this is not an episode of Black Mirror. We will survive if we don't have five-star ratings, but do if you want to go and, and rate as, as you like. Thanks to Karen as well, and of course, our official uh, spokespuppy, Arwen. Until next time, Anna. Keep this channel open for more. <laughs>